Good morning, everybody. Good to see you and to worship along with you here on this Resurrection Sunday. Now, a number of long time ago, a number of years ago, I was living just outside of Dallas, and my roommate took me to church in Dallas to a mega church. I'd never been in a mega church. And I'd been maybe a follower of Jesus for about a year or a little more than a year. And so it was this huge church and it was Easter Sunday. And I think there was more than one smoke machine on each edge of the stage. And there was like a replica of the tomb. It was amazing. And there's lots of lights, tons of people, very loud. And and I I remember standing near the back and any time there was a mention of Jesus or rising from the dead or any of these kinds of lives, people would just spontaneously yell. And, and the, there'd be a surge of volume of people who were so excited about the resurrection. I remember standing around looking, I, I'm not getting this. You ever had the sense where you're on the outside looking in? I felt very much on the outside going, I, I don't, I, I have not found my, my happy switch or my yell switch. And a couple moments later, just two, three rolls over, there was a guy who would just spontaneously yell, Freedom! And it was like a, a Braveheart had just come out of the time. I thought, oh, that's kind of cool. I like Braveheart. Um, and, and, I, and I thought, well, I can't do that, at least not in public, maybe in the shower. That would be weird. Why are you yelling that there? Anyways, um, and so I felt like I, I'm just, I'm not tracking. I don't get it. I don't have the thing to, to participate. And I felt on the outside looking in. And to be honest, I think most Easter's I feel that way. Uh, I have to remind myself and I have to retrace my steps back to the cross and go, what, what, what is this? What's going on? What's this all about? And so in doing that this year, retracing my, my steps, reading through these gospel accounts, I kind of backed into what felt like good news again. And, and what particularly was interesting to me was what theologians call the appearance accounts. And that sounds kind of uh, sterile, but what it is is looking at uh, Jesus in those 50 days, what he does, what he seems to be most um, concerned about in those 50 days, and it's really telling. So if you were the resurrected son of God who had just, you know, defeated death and sin, and you've got a resurrected body, you know, and whatever that really means, if this was you, what would be your agenda? How would you go about Eastertide, these 50 days? What would you think, this is top priority for me? And, and t- many times we look at Jesus and think, you know, I would do it different. It's just a little understated, a little too non-flashy. And maybe you're thinking, you know what, Jesus, you need a strategist. You need some marketing here. You need some help. Perhaps you should have considered going to Rome and getting in the gladiator circuit, work your way up to the ranks, you know, one-on-one meeting with Caesar, you know, coming in with Jesus as Lord, like a little robe or something, Philippians 4, it wasn't even written then, but... Um, <laughs> You know, so you come in, and maybe you could have done that a little more impressive. Or, or maybe Jesus could have confronted the Jewish leaders of the day, the ones who crucified him, and, you know, come in and said, now what's up, guys? I'm setting up shop here in Jerusalem, new headquarters. Jesus International, we're going big. 
straight out of Jerusalem here. Uh, we're taking down this whole corrupt religious system. Jesus doesn't do any of that. One author puts it this way. Jesus doesn't build his movement on the praise of crowds, the wisdom of the scholars, the might of the army, or access to cultural elites. Jesus spends his time finding his followers who were lost in the fallout between his death and resurrection. And he goes about lovingly, convincingly restoring their hope. I think this says a lot about who Jesus is and what's important to him as he's building this brand new fledgling community. What Jesus is most concerned about and what we see him doing over and over and over again is finding his friends, sometimes in groups of one, sometimes a one-on-one, sometimes in larger groups, doesn't matter, finds his friends who've lost hope and, and he goes about meeting them. For one of them, he creates breakfast on the beach and says, come, let's have breakfast. Shows up in their meetings, just interrupting things and says, peace be with you. Don't be afraid. And we're going to look at one of those texts, but it doesn't matter what, what appearance account we're looking at. Jesus goes and finds people, particularly people who are caught in emptiness and disillusionment and abandonment, people who are stuck. If they had a way to get out, they would, (laughs) but they don't. And those are the people Jesus goes and finds. And that's what he spends his 50 days doing. And so when we kind of back into that story, he goes like, "Ah, I don't don't have the switch. I'm not going to yell freedom, but I'm open to surprises. I might. Um, I won't. No, but what what could be going on here that uh, might be better than I've imagined. So I want to look at one of these appearance accounts with you. This is from John 19. And uh, there's Bibles on your chairs, so you can join along. And we're going to spend our time this morning in this text. So you can just keep that open. And as I say things, you can check for yourself and and follow along and uh, look in uh, this scripture passage here from John's Gospel. Chapter 19 starting on verse 41, this is page 756. So, at the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid. There's a thing in Jewish understanding of Scripture, they called it the principle of first mention. And so whenever you'd hear a phrase or a word, if you're a Jewish person reading Scriptures, you go, oh, where did I hear that before? Where's the first time we've heard that? So here flags are going off, garden, garden, two mentions of garden. Where, where do I know about a garden? Right, Genesis 1, 2, and 3. Right, so what happened in the garden? Well, God created the world, all that we know. Okay, so here's a new garden. What might be happening in this garden? Potentially a new kind of creation. What's going to happen now? So we follow along. Verse 42, because it was the Jewish day of preparation. And since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus Jesus there. Early on, the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene, went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. 
Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had risen from the dead. And the disciples went back to where they were staying. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. And as she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white, seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. And they asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They've taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they've put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there. She did not realize that it was Jesus. He asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it that you're looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've put him and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher, Jesus said, do not hold on to me, for I have yet to ascend to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I'm ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that, she had said these th- that he had said these things to her. So we're starting, context is the garden. And here, this first character we hear of is Mary Magdalene. And in Luke's gospel, we get a little bit of a bio, background of Mary Magdalene. Luke says that this was a woman whom Jesus had exercised, cast out seven demons from. So Mary is a woman familiar with the dark. Mary is a woman who very likely is an outcast, who doesn't fit in. And very likely previously to Jesus, there's never been a man, a person in her life who treated her with dignity. So Mary, as a result, is extremely loyal to Jesus. And so it's still dark, and she arrives, uh, as John tells us, to anoint Jesus' body. She shows up to grieve, to weep, and just to be with Jesus. But she comes, and we hear the, the, the tomb is uh, empty. It's not uh, covered anymore. So she takes off and tells Peter and John, and there's this funny little bit in there. I don't know if you noticed it, but it says, so Peter and the other disciple, which is John's way of referring to himself, all throughout John's gospel, he says the other disciple or the disciple that Jesus loved um, there. So he won't say himself directly, but he's talking about himself. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running. But the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. Just a, just a little bit of one-upmanship there and, and a, a not-so-humble brag. And it's like the, the selfie on Instagram saying, you know, I was hoping for a group shot with my running club, but they haven't gotten up the hill yet. <laughs> selfie is like, okay, my lats sure are sore today. It's like, okay, we get it. You're working out a ton. Um, and, and so this not-so-humble brag um, but what's interesting is, okay, John, we get it. You get there first. But he, he gets there, and he hesitates. He, he stops. Maybe he's unsure. Maybe he's afraid. Like, what is he expecting to find in there? 
I don't know if any of us have experience in just kind of waltzing into a tomb. So the, the hesitance makes sense in many ways. But for whatever reason, he's unable or unwilling to go in. He stays on the edge. He stands back. He's like, I'll, I'll just watch. It says he bends over and he looks and he can see a bit. He can see these strips of linen. But then Peter eventually catches up and Peter does what Peter always does. Just barrels in there. Probably just sprinting in there. <sighs> All right. So Peter comes in and he's the, one of those classic people. You act and then you think. You have friends like this. These are great people to be friends with. They act and then they think. They make the mistakes and then you get to learn from them, right? And they're like, hey, that's leadership. You're riding on the coattails of my mistakes. But that's, uh, that's how it works. And we need people like Peter who will just kind of be bold and get right in there. And John continues. He says, he saw, he's talking about himself, the strips of linen lying there as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside. He saw and believed. Now, this is weird because there's so much talk here of noticing about the garments. And unless you're Julie Edgley and really dialed into clothing and fashion and seams, why would you notice all of this stuff? Just shout out to you, Julie. Happy Easter. Um, why would you notice all these things? Well... One author said, it's just like, uh, as John saw these carefully laid out linens in his gospel, he's trying to carefully lay out all these different details for his readers to notice and to look at. And there's many details in here, like why the need to include this running race and, and what was going on at the tomb door and all these linens. Well, if this is just a myth or some sort of spiritual story that you're supposed to glean or or treat as a metaphor, then the details don't actually matter. But if it's, if it's history, then the details matter. And one New Testament scholar, N.T. Wright, uh, comments that when we look at the period uh, around Jesus' death and resurrection, 50 years on either side of that, so 100 years span, there are about 10 to 12 uh, Jewish messianic movements. And there are two things that always happened when it went sideways or when the Messiah was executed or just done away with. Two things. The followers would give up the movement and then find a new Messiah. Disband, get a new Messiah. So it's really surprising that here with this Jesus movement, followers don't do those two things. Why? Because they're convinced about the details. They're convinced that Jesus actually was raised for the dead. And for their movement, not only to continue, but as history shows, for it to explode, something clearly happened in the details. And so when we look at these, these carefully laid out strips of linen, as it were, we see things like if this was a grave robbery, which is what Mary Magdalene was really concerned about, if it was that... Um, and it, apparently this was a concern to have. There was uh, Emperor Claudius who ordered capital punishment for any grave robbers who were tampering with, destroying, or robbing a grave. So it was a thing. So Mary's concern is founded. But however, this, this presence of folded garments, even the fact that there's expensive linens and spices left behind, these are the very things uh, a thief would be after. This is why you would break into 
a tomb. Those are the stuff that you're wanted, wanting. And, and, and all this mention of the careful placement and folding of these linens. This is not a scene of, of a quick getaway. You know, when, you're, when I was doing B&Es as a younger kid, this is, we don't need to get in those details, but just, you're not careful. You're just in and you're out. Um, that's the point. And, and so why, why these folded, um, folded pieces of linen? If this was done by the Jewish leaders, if they stole the body, then, you know, in a couple weeks and months from now where this Jesus movement really is picking up steam, they'd have the ultimate trump card to say, no, he's not, we've got his body. Or if it was the disciples, say, you know, as soon as the persecution would start coming, and it did, most of these disciples were martyred for their belief. At some point, if it was an inside job, you go, I'm not, I'm out. I'm not dying for a hoax. And, and then we look at the details, the odd details of who are the original witnesses to the resurrection. And the fact that women were the first to discover the empty tomb. If, if you're devising a con, you wouldn't pick women to do this. Why? Because in that day, women were not allowed to bear witness in court. And Paul, in 1 Corinthians 15, does something weird where he doesn't even mention the women as in his list of witnesses. Why? Because they, they couldn't even stand as a witness. So this is clearly, if you're being strategic, this would be not the way you should go about it. And we look at the variety of, of appearances, as I mentioned. Groups of two to 500, indoors, outdoors, he's eating, he's meeting with people. All of these little details laid out when you look at them. One uh, author said, no anti-Christian writer of the first two centuries seems to have denied that the tomb was empty. So we look at the discussion in those first two centuries of around the resurrection, what wasn't in contention was that the tomb was empty. And this is interesting. Peter, first sermon, first public moment for this fledgling church, Acts 2. What does Peter talk about? He talks about Jesus being raised from the dead, and he's pointing to the resurrection. He's not doing like a comparative religious thing. He's not trying to get all metaphysical. He's, he's not talking about like first principles of logic and how we could deduce. And, you know, none of that is happening. All he's saying is Jesus was resurrected. We don't even know fully what it means, but it happened. And this then is, it's an event. It's, a, it's about history. And so when John sees really the combined evidence, the removed stone, the empty tomb, the linen wrappings, and, and the folded headcloth. He does the math, and he puts it so simply. It's so subtle, maybe you even missed it as we heard it. It's so subtle, he says, he saw or he looked and believed. Now, for those of you who are allergic to hype or really emotive expressions, John is your man. No hype here. There's no adjectives. There's no great light. There's no verbosity here. Just simple. I saw and I believed. And there may be some of us who were married to like a Peter or we've got friends or a Peter character. They're really into this stuff. They just charge right in. They get it. They're really into this Jesus stuff. But maybe there's some of us, we've got some Johns in this congregation, which is not the right way to say that. Um, that's not, you don't put it that way. We, there's, we have some of us that are John-like. Um, 
which also doesn't help. So there's just some of us, there's characteristics in John that where he hesitates, and for whatever reason, he's, he's unsure, and he won't go in. And I think the invitation for those of us who are like, I don't know if I'm unwilling or if I'm unsure. I don't know what it is, but I'm not going in there. I think the invitation is, there's no pressure here. There's no mention of an angel kind of behind him, trying to force him in there. The invitation is, go in, look for yourself, investigate, explore, see, look, and find out if this is intellectually credible if this is historically verifiable, if this is existentially satisfying, find out, look. As John continues on to Mary, verse 11, but Mary stood outside. Now, John and Peter, they've taken off. We don't know. We don't hear details of why or where they've gone or are they together. We just know they're out of there, but Mary stays. Mary stays outside the tomb crying. She's likely weeping over the loss of the body. And perhaps it's this, the indignity of like, um, you can imagine her saying, like, you've got to be kidding me. I, even my mourning is violated. I don't even get to have a proper funeral here. I just want a little bit of time to grieve. Perhaps there's some betrayal mixed in there. Jesus, I thought I, I, thought I knew you. I thought I understood what you're about what, what did these last few years with you even mean then? I had faith before, and now I don't. And it feels like a slow hiss is coming out of me. It used to make sense, but now all I've got is absence. So she's standing outside in just profound emptiness. The problem is I'm, she's not able to locate God. She's got an empty tomb, that's it. The problem of not being able to locate God in the very place of profound ache, deep loneliness, absolute abandonment. Ever had that difficulty in locating God? I used to know where he was, sure, and now I don't know. It feels like my faith is like escaping me with the slow hiss. And so at this juncture, we as readers are right there with Mary. <laughs> We're left with an empty tomb. And an empty tomb on its own isn't good news. It's just empty. So we stand in that place this morning. And Mary gets addressed this phrase, Woman, why are you crying? It's never good to start a sentence with woman. And, and just, just straight out, don't ever use this question in a relationship, okay? <laughs> Woman, why are you crying? Um, I once used the word dramatic. Not good. <laughs> so you never get to go chapter and verse on this. You know, why are you crying? They get mad and you just say, hey, Luke 20, 13, being biblical. You don't get to do that. So... This, is, this isn't a question about information, like, I want to know the reasons. And it's not, it's not actually, I don't think, rushing her grief, like, get over it. But knowing, the angels, knowing what they know, are saying to Mary, Mary, your tears are incongruent with what's most true in this moment. Actually, the truest thing about you 
and Jesus. You're not seeing right now. It's about to collide into your life. But the truest thing going on this moment is not congruent with your sense of abandonment. At this, Mary turns around and she sees Jesus standing there. but She doesn't realize that it was him. And he asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it that you're looking for? Brilliant question. Who are you looking for? What are you expecting? Thinking he was the gardener, which is just great ironic humor in there, thinking that he's out there just planting things and tending to the fuchsias and maybe getting some vegetables into the ground. I don't really know. But she says, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've put him and I will get him. And I, I like the intensity of Mary's words because I feel like Mary. Any, any of you who like, like control and when it's all chaotic, just give me the info, give me the details, I'll take care of this. Tell me where the body is, I will fix this. Just give me the details and get out of here. But here's the thing, Mary's not going to fix this. It's Jesus who recognizes her first. She doesn't find him, he finds her. And the resurrection is this announcement that this is all about God's grace. Jesus takes the initiative. Resurrection does not depend on you and doesn't actually require your permission, and doesn't look for your additions. This is not human engineered. Nobody is looking for this. While the world sleeps, God is working the overturning of death in the hidden places where no eye can see and no eye is looking. Mary, you're not going to come up with it. What are you looking for? And so in this profound moment of intimacy, Jesus speaks her name. I don't know if you noticed how simple that sentence is. Jesus, all he says is, Mary. You know there's a lot of ways for your name to be said. Right? A lot of ways. Diane! Or Diane. Or you arrive at the party. Diane! Diane. so many ways to say your name. And, and in the saying of it, it is loaded with intention. And it creates a different kind of response in you. So Mary hears her name. We don't know all that she hears in the saying of her name. But it's enough for her to turn. The text says Mary turns and sees Jesus. Now, a second before this turn, there is a woman who, as we've just said, is caught and stuck in abandonment, who feels trapped with just an enormous vacuum. All she has is emptiness, is deep human despair, and she is in the presence of inconquerable death. Next, sec- next second, she turns. After she turns, she is facing this Jesus, and now she's in the presence of the death-conquering Jesus I mean, what a two-second shift, but her world literally changes from going from despair to hope, and it's all about which way she's facing. And, and in that two-second thing, what, what a rush that must have been for Mary to go, I, I was not predicting this. She's the first person ever to experience the personal presence of the risen Jesus. And she turns to them, and, and that small little turn 
is huge. This is where her meaninglessness is conquered and drained. And, and for John, John comes to recognize the re resurrection by kind of doing, looking at the evidence. For Mary, she comes because somebody said her name. And it's her name that's being spoken, but even almost more important than her name, it's who's doing the speaking, Mary. And in that being named, she knows that she is known and she's found and she's loved in this place. Why? Because Jesus has conquered sin and not just sin in general, but Mary's, hers. And that Jesus has risen again and defeated shame. And not just shame in a vague sense, but in the particular kind, her own brand of shame. She recognizes that Jesus has said her name and is standing in front of her. She was looking for a corpse, and this living Jesus found her. And it's a profound moment of tenderness. I like how one author said it, and this, this sounds like pretty extreme, but I like it. He says, is there any other meeting anywhere else in Scripture or in world history as dramatic or as important as this one verse meeting? Jesus turning to Mary says, Mary. And she responds saying, Rabbani, which was probably the most common thing she would have called him, teacher. And the next verse, we don't know how much time has elapsed, so it kind of is jarring because Jesus' response is, don't hold on to me or don't cling to me. So we get from that, they're obviously having an embrace and having a hug. I'm guessing it was lengthy. I don't think Mary's coming in and Jesus says, do not cling to me. You know, and this, again, is not something for all of us non-huggers to go chapter and verse on. You're getting hugged and do not cling to me. John 20, verse 18. You don't, you don't get to do that again. So, so do not cling to me. Why is he saying that? He's like, because this isn't actually the end of the story, Mary. You've seen me, and now I want you to go and tell. And he gives her, goes from meeting to mission. He says, go tell your brothers. Now, this is... This is really significant. Why? The first person to get to announce the resurrection is a woman. Now, for centuries, women were blamed because of the fall. There's this lie going around, well, they're the weaker sex because Eve believed the serpent and fell for the, the temptation. And we wouldn't be in this jam if it weren't for the ladies. Full-on lie. You know, not, not mentioning Adam's total abdication, just passivity, his blaming, his total willingness to go along. Patriarchal societies have a, a way of editing history. And so he, this is stunning. Jesus entrusts the first person who gets to announce that he is resurrected is a woman. Go. Tell your brothers. Which reminds me of my friend Tim. I wish you could all know Tim. Uh, every time, as soon as I start talking about Tim, I chuckle a little bit. When I lived in Texas, I met Tim. Tim was from Mississippi. And I think, I wish, 
if I could have a gift, I would want all of you to have a friend from Mississippi. Uh, Tim was just this amazing guy. We both played trombone, and we sat together in the orchestra, and, and we went on to become uh, good, good friends. And Tim was one of those guys with just a permanent smile. He didn't know what he was always smiling about, but it's just how his face, I think, naturally rested. And, uh, and, and, and it, the corners of his mouth were always pulling up. Like, it wasn't just a smile that was cemented. It was one that had the possibility of breaking even bigger. And so the corner of his mouth were always pulling up, and he had this ability to pull up everything and everyone around him just with this smile. And Tim did this thing. He had this phrase where he, sometimes he'd be at the end of the table and there could be a conversation going on at the other end. And uh, he'd just lean over and go, what's this now? You'd be full-on talking, and he'd just kind of insert himself in there. What's this now? <laughs> and as a very white man who overpronunciates, it doesn't have the same effect. What is this now? It isn't as good. Or what is this now that you're speaking about? Uh, with him, it was way better. It was just kind of, what's this now? And, he'd, and he would lean in with expectancy, and his face was he was already smiling. He hadn't even heard what we were talking about. But he's coming in with the assumption as, this is going to be some good stuff. And, and his face is going up. The eyebrows are up and his nostrils are flaring just to kind of take it in. What is this now? And often there was nothing to, there was nothing to say. And, but he wouldn't let you off the hook. He'd give you a few nods like, come on, give me the goods. And so you'd just be like, well, we were, we were just commenting on how the cafeteria used to have white bread and brown bread and rye. But they got rid of the rye and so there's no rye bread now, that was all we were talking about, and he'd go, ah, like it was a joke. <laughs> it, and, and so suddenly, being around Tim was you could do jokes with no punchline. <laughs> it was amazing. And, and, and so it, was, it built up, the result of this, it built up this expectancy that there was more fun that was possible, that uh, we laughed more, that you could tell jokes without a punchline. And, and he had this way of drawing out more stories. Because there's always a story here. What is this now? Always. So Tim lived with the sense that there was always something afoot. That he just hadn't heard the joke yet. That there were stories swirling everywhere. And his main job in the moment was to get in on them. What is this now? Just let, let, let me in. What's going on? And I think that's a really good posture for Easter. Like, I don't understand it all. Coming partway into this, Jesus was died, resurrected, the tomb's empty. But I like that posture. There's something afoot here. There's more going on than I'm able to comprehend. And you just kind of lean in a little bit. What, what's this? What, what's this now? There's a, there's a joke here to be had. What's the joke? That even in my weakness, even in my full-on sin and rebellion against God, it is not enough to stop God from finding me. Was this now? Jesus was crucified, died, buried, rose from the grave. The old order of sin 
and disintegration and despair. Not in general, in particular, your own sin, disintegration and despair has been done away with. There is a coup. God is starting something new. There's a second garden. There was the first. There is the second. And there's a new creation that is unfolding right in the midst of it. Where is God setting this up? Right in the midst of the old. Where does God want to announce resurrection? Right in the vacuum. Right in the empty tomb. Right in your void. What's this now? Yeah, he's risen. Resurrection is the announcement that the powers that have kept you caught in corruption and death and decay have been overthrown. What's this now? Jesus is on the scene saying your name. So in all of the Gospels, when one meets Jesus, there's a meeting and then there's a mission. This happens every time. So Jesus meets Mary, and, and he gives her the responsibility and the privilege to speak about what she's seen. Go and tell my brothers. And so we, we hear this morning in, in this text the invitation to explore, to not only stand at the edge and peer in, but consider going in, exploring, looking for yourself, seeing if this can hold your weight, the full weight of your existence. Can this be trusted? Jesus really raised from the, be raised from the dead. So to explore. The second is reminded that God is a God of encounter who locates us when we cannot locate him. And the places he sh- tends to show up are actually in the empty places. Why? Because there's an overthrow happening. There's a new creation unfolding. And the third thing is we're invited to exhale. To, to get to say something, and you don't have to belabor the point, but a balloon without any exhale, without any air, you know, is, is rather pathetic. But it's in the exhale. Yeah, let's mic this. Just wanted you to get the exhale off. It's in the exhale where resurrection starts becoming visible. That's where it starts showing up. You start seeing it. And so as we come to the table, reminding ourselves that we are people of encounter, that God is intensely personal and meets us even on this Easter morning, come and receive the bread and the wine, but also come and get a balloon. For our benediction, we're going to do a shared benediction at the end of the gathering where we're going to exhale where we have seen the risen Jesus in this last year. It may not be a flashy story. There may be a lot of grit in it. But maybe I've seen Jesus to be enough. I've seen Jesus. He's been my teacher. He's, he's, he's been teaching me a new relationship to the Bible. Or I've seen Jesus to be my physician, my counselor. I've seen Jesus to be my leader. Whatever, whatever it is, we're, we're going to come at the end to the benediction and fill these balloons and we're going to exhale our own resurrection, um, seeing sights and where we've seen Jesus in this last year. And then we'll just throw them in the air and have a little balloon party. Okay? So...
here this morning, I uh, bumped into Morgan Reimer. Uh, I don't know if you know the Reimers, but Morgan Reimer came up to me, guessing he's four or something like that, and he sticks out his chest, and he says, look at my medal. And he had this medal, a baseball medal on him. Look at my medal. And so I looked at that. I said, oh, is that your medal? Did you win that? He said, no, it's my dad's. He won it. Notice how he said, look at my medal. How much did Morgan contribute to that victory? <laughs> Zero. And we come to the table and we were reminded the same is true for us. <laughs> Jesus has been victorious for us. It's not about trying to get better or improve or somehow I will, be, I will get resurrection on my own. No. It's walking around with a medal that you didn't win and you contributed zero to and you can have even a boast. Look at my medal. He won it for me. And so what's true of Jesus becomes true of us as we put our faith in him and we're reminded of that tangibly this morning. Full adoption. Full justification. Full enjoyment and affection is ours from God.